The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. We will be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I wonder um, if you've ever wondered, what is my purpose? (laughs) Uh, What's the point? What am I here for? What am I, what am I really you know, supposed to be doing with my life? Uh, those are big questions, probably too big for each of us to answer individually and comprehensively on a Sunday morning. And yet, in this passage, Jesus gives us an answer. It's not a comprehensive answer, but it's part of the answer, part of his answer to what you're here for. Now, Jesus, he's talking primarily to his, to his followers in this text. When, when he starts off in Matthew 5, verse, verse 13, saying you, the you, is, it's emphatic and restrictive. He, he's not talking about people in general. He's talking about his followers. So if you're here and you're a Christian, <laughs> you know, listen up. Um, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this passage is, is also extremely important to you too. It, it, it just might help name some things that you've always felt were maybe missing or, or wrong with, with Christians you know. And so it, it might help correct how you've misunderstood Christianity, um, understandably so, based upon how you've seen Christians live their lives. See, Jesus here in this text, he, he tells us what Christians are for. And he does so through two statements about what Christians are. And that is very helpful. I mean, think about it. Knowing what something is helps us understand what that something is for, doesn't it? In fact, it's only when we correctly understand what something is that we can correctly understand what that something is for. I'll give you two examples. First off, what, what, what's this? You can say it out loud. It's church. It's a sofa or a couch, yeah, yeah. And um, now that we understand what it is, what's it for? Napping, I heard, sitting, sometimes sleeping on if we're honest with ourselves, right? Uh, it's not a trampoline, is it? No, it's, it's not a trampoline, which means it's, it's, not, it's not for jumping on, you know, nothing like that. It's for sitting on. See, correctly understanding what something is helps us understand what that something is is for. Here's another one. What what do we got here? Green arrow. Yeah, green arrow. And and now we understand what it is. What's it for? It's giving you the right of way, isn't it? It's uh, it's, it's telling you, go ahead and drive forward and and, and turn. It's it's not a yield sign, is it? It's not a yield sign. It's also not a sign that says, uh, it's time to check your text messages. 
Nothing like that. It means go. It means go and turn. Get out of the way. Go. You know what I'm saying? All right. Correctly understanding what something is helps us correctly understand what it's for. I still feel like some of you are going to do the, do the green arrow thing wrong. You're like, got a lot of laughs on the couch, but the green arrow is it's kind of falling flat there. Uh, look at our text, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Look what Jesus says. There's two really important statements here helping us understand who we are as Christians. What does he say? Number one, you are the salt of the earth. You see it there? Number two, you are the light of the world. Salt and light, salt of the earth, light of the world. But look, look closely at the grammar here. The mood of the verb, it's, it's, it's are, you are. The mood of the verb is indicative. That means it's a, it's a statement of fact. We, we con- when we talk about scripture, often we'll contrast indicatives from imperatives. An imperative is a command, it's something to do. An indicative, on the other hand, is descriptive. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's not urging his followers to become something that we're not. Jesus is not hanging out in heaven right now thinking, man, can I just get some salt down there? A little bit of light down there? He's not even telling his followers here to act like salt or to act like light. No, he's telling them, he's telling you, He's declaring what Christians are as kingdom people. You are salt. You are light. And correctly understanding what we are helps us to correctly understand what we're for or why you're here or what's your purpose, what you're to be doing with your life. See, the shape of this passage is you are, so be. See? I want to summarize the thrust of Jesus' words here with two points for us as Christians this morning. Real simple. Point number one, stay salty. Point number two, shine. That's the thrust of Jesus' message here. Stay salty and shine. Let's look at each of these a little bit more careful. Verse, Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, he says, but, but... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's a rhetorical question, actually. It's not meant to have an answer. The point is this. If if salt loses its saltiness, its effectiveness, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Unsalty salt, Jesus says, is good for nothing. It's lost its purpose. Now let's think about salt for a minute. Salt's used for a lot of different things. Helps ice melt in the winter in Nebraska. Makes your water boil faster on on the pot, on your stove. But Jesus seems to be focused in on how it's used with respect to food. He's talking about taste. And when we narrow our attention of salt to the realm of food, we realize that salt has two primary functions when it comes to food. It acts as a preservative and as a condiment, doesn't it? Now, what do we mean by preservative? Well, a preservative prevents decay. A preservative is, is the enemy of decay. Or another way to say it, it keeps things whole. Salt in Jesus' day, you know, they, they, they didn't have refrigerators and deep freezes like, like we might have. So salt was used to prevent rot, especially on meat. It was to, it was to prevent things from, from, from going bad and falling apart. 
So you'd rub the salt on the meat, get in good contact with the meat to keep it from going bad. All right, you're thinking, what on earth does that have to do with me? (laughs) Everything. Because Jesus is saying, you're the salt. You're the salt. See, fundamental to a Christian worldview is understanding that the world is falling apart. It's falling apart because of sin. Everything is tainted. Everything is affected by sin. And the result is we don't live with some kind of naive optimism that we as humans can figure out all the problems and make it all better. We don't look ultimately to technology or our progress or you know, artificial intelligence or politics to make everything better. We need Jesus to do that. I mean, just look around. There is a constant tendency for things to deteriorate, to rot, to fall apart. You can see it in neighborhoods. You can see it in schools. You can see it in families, in government, in business, in nations, in our social structures. There's a a constant tendency. Even when it gets better for a little bit, it ends up falling apart again. Now, enlightened thinking says, hey, listen, listen. We got this. We got this. A little more science, a little more technology, a little more study, a little more progress. We'll get it. We got it. But we don't got it. I mean, does anyone look around at everything that's going on in the Middle East right now? Israel, Palestine, now Iran. Anybody look around what's going on with Russia and Ukraine or the border crisis in our country, especially when you consider the human element there and and, and trying to have compassion towards people and yet also respecting the the, the fact for security and boundaries and and, and stability of a nation. Anybody look at all that and be like, we got this. Of course not. Things are always falling apart. The world isn't getting better and better and better. It's always falling apart. It can't help itself. It can't stop itself. From decaying. Only salt introduced from the outside can do that. And what does Jesus say? We are that salt. Listen, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. And understanding what you are helps you understand what you're for. You're to be a preservative. Christians are to be a preservative force against the decay, against the rot. What does that mean? It means when Christians see things falling apart, they get in there. When someone has fallen apart emotionally, when, when, when someone is struggling, when someone's maybe struggling with depression or something terrible happens to them, when their life is falling apart, when it's all collapsing, you go in. That's what Christians do. Because that's what Christians are. We're salt. When a family is falling apart, you don't sit back and watch. You move in, move into action. And did you notice here, Jesus doesn't say, you're the salt of the church. He doesn't say, you're the salt of the Christian subculture. No, what's he say? He says, you're the salt of the earth. You're to get out there, be rubbed in. This is some of Jesus' most clear teaching on a Christian's relationship to the world. There's a big difference, a real big difference between being what I'll call a religious person and being a real follower of Jesus. Did you know that you can be one without the other? A religious person who isn't really following Jesus, even if they believe in him, 
can just sit back and look at the world and say, what a mess. What a mess. Can look at a person and say, why, why can't she get her life together? Hmm? I mean, suck it up. Why didn't, he, why didn't he budget better? Why didn't he go to college and make something of himself? Why That people group, that neighborhood, they just need to get it together. What's wrong with them? Do you see what that sort of attitude assumes? It assumes the world can make itself better. It assumes the world doesn't need salt. And really it comes from a place of self-righteousness that doesn't understand the gospel. Let me illustrate it this way. Anyone here into leftovers? I'm going to have some for lunch today. Leftovers? Yeah, some, some leftovers. My favorite leftovers is actually spaghetti. I don't know what it is. Um, it's a mystery, but scientifically proven fact that spaghetti tastes better the second day. I don't know if you found this out yet or not. I saw a couple of head nods there. Um, one day, the food scientists are going to figure it out and teach us why. But what happens if I leave that same bowl of spaghetti in the fridge, not just for one day, but for a few days, and then maybe actually longer than that, because I forgot about it, didn't get to it, got tucked behind the milk back there, and actually now we're like four, five, eight, ten weeks long. What happens? All right? You know what happens. Eventually, you look in the fridge, and it's a mess, isn't it? I mean, it's like green. It's like fuzzy. There's like a white eyeball-looking thing, like staring back at you. Where did that come from? No, just one. Just one white spot. Everything else is green. It's weird, right? It stinks. You wish you could throw the whole fridge away, but it's heavy and people would notice, right? When that happens, no one looks at the spaghetti and says, what's the matter with you? You know, like, why, why didn't you take better care of yourself? Now, when you look at the spaghetti and you see the mold, you say, I, man, I really should have done something about that. You know, I, I, I should have gotten in there. I should have eaten you sooner. Spaghetti can't keep itself from rotting, can it? It can't stop its own decay. Listen, it's the same way with the world. Broken families, broken neighborhoods, broken schools, broken systems, they're no different than the spaghetti. Do you believe that? Listen, if not, you don't really understand sin and the effects of sin. If not, you don't really understand the gospel and the power of God. You're looking at your own life, really, and you might not realize this, but you're, you're actually looking at your own life and, and, and really thinking, I did it on my own. It was hard, but I did it. I got myself cleaned up. I made myself better. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and everybody else needs to do the same. That's not the gospel of Jesus. That's the gospel of self-righteousness, which is not good news to a decaying world. And if that's the way you think, you'll never be salt. You'll, you'll never be the preservative that the world needs because you really don't believe that the world needs you. And the result is we become religious. And we huddle up and we make a bubble. And oh, sure, we help preserve the Christian culture, but we look around at the culture around us, down our noses, and we say, inherently, why can't you just get it together on your own? First function of salt is to act as a preservative. Christians, real Jesus followers, are the salt of the earth. You go in, you, you get involved, you see decay, and you're moved to action. The second purpose of salt, then, is that of a condiment, meaning it seasons. It makes everything better, doesn't it? 
I like to cook when, when I have time. I like uh, Saturday mornings, I like to cook eggs or something like that when I'm not rushing out the door to do something else. Uh, I like to make scrambled eggs. Have you ever had scrambled eggs that don't have any salt on them? I know, Tasha, I know, I know. <laughs> Some people can't have salt. If you've ever had to have scrambled eggs without salt, you know they're not that good. They're just really not. Sorry. They're just not. Um, but when you've eaten scrambled eggs with a little bit of salt on them, what do you say? You, you, never, you never have them and say, wow, that was great salt. Nobody ever eats the scrambled eggs that are lightly salted and say, that was great salt. No, you say, these were incredible eggs. Why? Because the job of the salt, the function of the salt, is not to make you think how great the salt is, but how great the thing is that it's involved with. It's the same for you as salt of the earth at your workplace, at your neighborhood, in your schools. If you're the salt of your workplace, you make it better. If you're the salt of your neighborhood, you, you, you make it better. You're, you're not the complainer. You're not the slacker. You make it better at work. You work hard. You do good work. You make others' jobs easier. You help others. You show compassion to them. You make for a better work culture. You make for a better neighborhood culture. If you're salt in your school, you make it better. You're not a troublemaker. You're not disrespecting teachers. You're helping out. You're getting involved. You're looking out for others, caring for others, taking responsibility even for others. Now, you've got to use wisdom and discernment in that. Because if you dump a whole thing of salt on eggs, what will you taste? Just the salt. Is that any good? No, it's gross. <laughs> it's nasty. Salt is to be sprinkled, not poured. It's to make things better, not worse. And as Christians, we need to hear that because if we're not careful, we can ruin things in our zeal with too much salt just as easily as we can without any at all. I don't remember where I picked this up. It, this isn't original to me. Somewhere, someone, probably a Christian, once said, well, yeah, should have been a Christian, yeah. They said, hey, uh, real Christians are attracted to and they're attractive to. That's got nothing to do with how you look, all right? Uh, as Christians, we're to be attracted to areas of need, areas attracted to areas of brokenness. We're the salt of the earth. When we see a need, we rub in. We, we don't retreat. We're not repelled. We're attracted to. As Christians, we're attractive too. Meaning, when we live like this, there's an attractiveness to the gospel that the world sees. They're drawn in. They see something different. They see those who are seeking to make things better. They don't see a giant salt block stuck to itself. They see the salt of the earth being sprinkled all over the earth. They see our gospel goodness and they're drawn in. Now, I didn't say that Christian truth or Christian beliefs were attractive. Very often, they're not. That's where blessed are those who are persecuted comes in. But part of the reason the world isn't drawn to Christianity is because they think they've seen Christianity and they don't see anything different about Christianity. In fact, they see the same fracturing, they see the same failures, they see the same infighting and political positioning and power struggling, and they say, no, thank you. I'm good. Go back to the text. Who are you, Christian? You're the salt of the earth. 
Now, Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. If you do, you lose your purpose. You lose what you're for. You become, look what he says, good for nothing. There's all kinds of reasons that we might lose our saltiness, aren't there? Comfort, fear, laziness, self-righteousness, self-protection, not wanting to be tainted by the world, not, not wanting to be associated with something that we're getting involved in, that people might get the wrong idea about who we are. Selfishness, what is it for you? What might be causing you, what might cause you to lose your saltiness? See, Jesus' words here, they're, they're a help. They help us to understand what we're here for. They help us to understand our purpose. But these words might also be a challenge. Perhaps even an admonishment or a rebuke. Stay salty. Stay salty. You're the salt of the earth. Stay salty. Secondly then... You're the light of the world. And as such, you're to shine. Shine. Two light sources are named in our passage here, lamps and the glow of a city, a city on a hill. You know, I grew up in the country, um, you know, an hour southwest of here, not in town, but out, out, in the, out in the sticks there. And Nebraska's pretty flat. I don't know if you've noticed this about our state. It's pretty flat. And what that means is uh, there's no literal cities on a hill. You know, Scott's Bluff doesn't count. Um, and, but on a clear night out in the country, you, you, if you look on a real clear night, you can see the glow from a neighboring town. So where I was from, if you look to the north, towards York, the metropolis of York, you could see the glow, right? Even if you looked to the northeast to Lincoln, on a real clear night from 50 miles away, if the atmosphere was just right, you could see the glow. You could see it. You saw the glow. You saw the lights. It couldn't be hidden. Now, where was that glow? Where, where is that light coming from? It's not one giant light bulb on top of the Capitol building, you know. It's the collective makeup of many, many lights. Many individual lamps, to use Jesus' words. Lamps, see, are individual lights. City lights are made up of all the individual lamps in that city, in that community. The community, therefore, only gives off light to the extent that the citizens of that community are not hiding their lamps. Only to the extent that the individual lamps shine. Think about lights in your house. Uh, what do you do with them during the day when it's light out? Adults know this. Exactly. Yeah. If you're under, I don't know, 18, it's harder. It's hard. I know you're still, we're getting there. We're getting there, you know? Um, think about nighttime, though. Also think about nighttime, not just daytime. You ever gone down into your basement? You know, let's just say nobody sleeps down there. Uh, you know, and, and you go to a closet, like a basement closet. No one's down there. No one's going to be around. You ever go down there and, and turn the light on to a basement closet right before you go upstairs and go to bed? No. Why would you ever do that? Nobody ever does that. What would the point be? It'd be pointless. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying no one lights no one turns on a light in the basement at night. No, no one turns on a flashlight and sticks it back in the drawer. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That's pointless. 
We understand it. No, you put the lamp on a stand. That's what it's for. You put it on the stand, and it gives light to the whole house. That's the point. The purpose of the lamp is to provide light. And Jesus says, you're the lamp. (laughs) You're the light. You're the light of the world. You are. It's part of your purpose. In other words, Christians are to be visible. We're lit, right, with the gospel and salvation. We're, we're lit with the love of God and the power of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. We're called out of darkness into his marvelous light, not so that we can shine like a, a, like a light in the basement at night or a, like a flashlight in a drawer, but like a lamp on a stand, visible, visible. And then collectively, all the lamps on our stands, a collective glow, shining, city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And notice again, like with the salt of the earth, Jesus says here, you're the light of the world. I checked multiple translations, even some bad ones. I couldn't find a single one that says, you're the light of the Christian world. You're the light of the Christian subculture. Well, they all just say world. Why? Because as Christians, we're to be light of the world. Jesus says so, and Jesus actually prayed for this for us. Did you know that? In John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. If you're a Christian, you've been sent into the world. You're to be in the world, but not of the world. He says that in the prayer too. But you're sent into the world as light. We're not to hide ourselves from the world, dark as it may be. Instead, as light, we're to permeate, penetrate the darkness, shining, visible, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The The Cost of Discipleship, he puts it this way. He says, flight to the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Hmm. Have you been a Christian long enough to realize that the longer you're a Christian the easier it is to surround yourself only by Christians? That's not biblical. Christianity has never been about retreat. It's never been about creating a, a subculture or, or a bubble. It's, that's so counter to our theology. From Genesis to Revelation, we are God's missionary people. We're the light of the world. And listen, it's actually getting easier and easier, I think, to not be light of the world. You know, in 2020, with the pandemic, we were conditioned to stay home. It became normal. Early in the pandemic, we stayed home to stay physically safe, we thought, right? But then as the election year waged on, increasingly we stayed home figuratively, if not literally, to create not just a safe physical space, but a safe ideological space too. On this side of all that, more and more people are working from home. Don't have to be, don't have to interact with the world at work. 
More and more people are ordering their groceries online, having things delivered or not to their home, to the parking lot. Don't have to interact with the world while we shop. We have the internet where we can get whatever we want and choose who and what we follow and listen to or not. Studies have shown that we're pretty prone as humans to creating our own little self-reflective echo chambers when we do that. Our own little bubbles. And sure, you listen to national news and world news sometimes. It's often horrible. It's dark. It's terrible. scary out there. And if you listen to the scary news, which is mostly what it is because fear sells, we can do that to the extent that we dupe ourselves into thinking that we've had enough of the world before we even step outside of our house. Which means when we do step outside into the world, we're always looking for shelter from the world rather than seeking to be light to the world. What does Jesus say? This is who you are. You are, so be. You are the light of the world. Shine. Shine. All right, maybe you're thinking, this this little light of mine, I am going to let it shine, right? But how? How should I do that? Is it through political involvement? Eh, perhaps. Is it through social, social activism? In some ways, maybe. What about through proclaiming the gospel and standing up for truth? Yes, of course, we're to do that. That's not the emphasis here, though. What's the light in this passage? It's our good works. In fact, verse 16 like light on a table, collectively, like a city on a hill. Let your light shine before others so that or in such a way that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see the connection? Between your light and your good works, Christianity is made most visible like light through our works. Now Jesus, he's got a lot to say about works in the Bible. You know, He's going to warn the Pharisees about good works. New Testament says often, you know, we're not to look to our good works to get us right with God. Good works will never save you. And yet, the New Testament also teaches us that we are to do good works, that faith without works is dead, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And as we do good works, our good works are not about drawing attention to ourselves. If you're doing that, you're doing it wrong. You need to hear Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees. No, as we do good works, people are to see our good works. And by the way we carry ourselves, maybe the way we explain ourselves, give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now, here's the trouble with a passage like this and talking about good works. Maybe you already sense it a little bit. Everyone wants to self-define and self-emphasize certain good works over others. And if we're not careful, we can be merely electing our own preferences, applying them to everyone else, condemning those who don't pursue the same good work that I do, which is really just a disguised version of self-righteousness. It says, if you don't care about my cause, you're not a Christian. 
Or if you don't do X, Y, and Z, or say X, Y, Z, or hold the position of X, Y, Z, you're failing as a follower of Christ. I don't know about you guys. When I hear stuff like that, it sounds exhausting before I even start. It's like, I can't, I can't do everything. I can't do all, you know, wow. It's overwhelming. And so what is a good work? What isn't? Does recycling count? Or do I have to run for city council? You know? Where do we start? Well, did you know that um, we're not the first generation of Christians to ask this question? I mean, imagine that. In fact, um, over 300 years ago, this is, a, this is a very common topic of conversation, especially amongst the Presbyterians and the Baptists, so much so that they define what a good work is in their confessions of faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith for the Presbyterians, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 for, for the Baptists, both nearly say the exact same thing, which is some form of this. Good works are actions that God has commanded us to do in his holy word that are fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. That's pretty good. That's the place to start. Actions that are commanded by God. Now, that doesn't negate something good like recycling or running for political office. There's all kinds of good works we can deduce from scriptures, maybe um, manifestations of living out a certain aspect of scripture, but knowing and heeding the explicit ethical commands of scripture is the place to start and the place to stand. And this applies back into the salt and light metaphors. You know, when Christians abhor evil and hold fast to what is good, like Paul talks about in Romans 12, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When Christians bless those who persecute them, bless and do not curse, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When Christians rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, not just amongst ourselves, but out there in the world, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When Christians aren't wise in their own sight, but associate with the lowly, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When we're patient in tribulation, as far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When we don't avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. When we love others, including our enemies, feeding them when they're hungry, giving them something to drink when they're thirsty, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When we give generously to those in need, not just with our money from afar, but with our lives up close, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When we control our, our anger and our lusts and our lies, when we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and welcome the stranger and visit the sick and care for the widow, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. When we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, when we do to others and for others whatever we wish that they would do for ourselves, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, the world tastes the salt and sees the light of the gospel. And when we do that, not in theory, not in our minds, 
But in our actual everyday lives, in actual, intangible ways, with and amongst specific people, in a specific neighborhood, or amongst your specific workplace, your co-workers, according to each of the ways that God has wired us and equipped us and, and, and called us and stationed us with, with specific people. These specific people whom God has sent you specifically to, they taste the salt and they see the light of the gospel. Stay salty and shine. You're the salt of the earth. You're to be rubbed in. Keep things from decaying, making things better. You're the light of the world. You're to shine like a lamp that those who don't know Jesus would see your works, your good works, and give glory to him. Now, probably at some point in the last 30 minutes or so, someone has at least had the question or the thought has popped into your head that sounds like this. I'm the light of the world? Because I thought... I thought Jesus was the light of the world. In fact, doesn't he, doesn't he say that in John 8, 12? <laughs> Some of you have been looking for it. That's where it is, 8, 12. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, you're thinking, you know, I'm supposed to keep things from decaying? I'm supposed to keep things from falling apart? I thought Jesus upheld the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 3. And that in him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. Which is it? Him or me? Well, here's the kick. The same Jesus who claims himself to be the light of the world, who declares himself to be the light of the world, declares you to be the light of the world. The same Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power declares you to be the salt of the earth. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because he's in you. See, the same gospel that says you're not your own, you know, you're about with the price, you're salt and light. You mustn't stay in a, you know, ecclesial salt shake or safe from the world. You mustn't hide your, your, your lamp under a bucket. Stay salty and shine. The same gospel that says you are not your own also says you're not alone. He's with you. And that's not just nice. It's essential. See, only when you understand that it's not you doing the preserving. It's not you doing the shining. That it's Christ in you and through you doing all of that. Only when you understand that apart from him preserving you and him shining light into your life, that it's, it's only because of that that you're not decaying and still in darkness. In other words, only when we understand the gospel. That on the cross, when, when, when Jesus died in your place, the greatest good work ever. He saved you, he preserved you, he shined his light upon you. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and has now made you light, made you salt. You didn't deserve that. You didn't earn that. You didn't prove that you were worthy of that. You were rotting spaghetti. It was all by his grace. That's the gospel. And only when this gospel comes home in you are you able to be salt and light without thinking, you know, it's all up to me on the one hand. 
whether in a defeated way or a prideful way, you know? Or, you know, this is completely hopeless. <laughs> it's up to me. It's not up to you. It's up to him through you. If you're a Christian, truly a follower of Jesus, he lives in you. You are salty salt. You are bright shining light. You are. So go be. Stay salty and shine. Let's pray. Father, who are we that you would save us and who are we that you would send us? It's so easy, God, for us to, to lose our purpose. It's so easy for us to lose our saltiness and hide our light. And it would seem this is one of the greatest dangers that we face as Christians in 2024. And so, Father, I pray that you would guard us from, from comfort, that you would make us increasingly self-sacrificing, that you would cast out fear and, and our strong propensity to self-protect. You are our protector. You are our comforter. You've shown us the ultimate sacrifice that was the pinnacle definition of self-sacrifice. And through it, through Jesus' death on the cross, you have called us into your marvelous light. You had made us light, made us salt. And so grow us, Lord, in being attracted to need and decay, things falling apart. Specific people bring names to mind, even right now. And situations particular ones and rub us in there Lord grow us in being attractive too attracting glory and honor and praise to you by our good works all while we trust in Jesus and his gospel knowing that none of our good works save us but as those who are saved we give ourselves to love and good works I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.